welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a discussion of law, civics, and government from a biblical perspective. I'm your host, Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me this morning. I ask that you please review the show, uh, share the show with a friend, give the thumbs up, the stars, the reviews, all those things are very helpful for me to get this message out to more to more individuals, so I truly appreciate that. Uh, with that said, I'd like to start off uh, this episode looking at a law of the day. Uh, that's something I wanted to try to do with every episode. I know that the last two podcasts, uh, we've been focused on reviewing a couple um, episodes of other podcasts on the issue of theonomy or God's law and how it applies. And since those took up such a good amount of time, I was not able to do a law of the day. So we're just going to get back into that this morning. And what I want to look at is Leviticus 19.15, which is very similar to Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. So we'll kind of look at that all together. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And uh, the sister passage in Deuteronomy 16 says this, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept the bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So what we see in these laws here is that when Israel enters the land, they are to live a certain way uh, that honors truth, honors God, uh, loves their neighbor, and shows true justice. Now, the nations around them did not do these things. They showed partiality. They would often um, just take care of the rich um, and those who are powerful, and the law would give advantage to those who had that kind of authority, power, and money to make it work for them. So the system was set up to function only for a certain number of people. Now, God's people were to be impartial. They were not to show any favoritism to someone, regardless of their class or social status. Now, to be partial means actually to have two different standards of laws. Because what you're saying is that one person gets a a free pass or they get kind of a, a lower punishment while another person gets the whole thing. They get the full punishment or they get held accountable all the way in every case. Whereas sometimes the others kind of get uh, they get a look they get looked over, right? So it really means having two different weights and measures, two different standards. You're measuring justice in two different ways. One set of justice for one group and one set for another. Now, historically, this has been an area that mankind has really struggled in. And typically, the rich have been given better treatment in order to get into good graces. So, of course, if someone is wealthy, if they have a lot of stuff, a lot of influence, then those who are handling law, handling justice, they might want a piece of the pie. They might want some handouts. They might want to get into the good graces of those who have the money. So, of course, uh, justice is going to go into favor of the rich. 
all right? The rich person would simply offer a bribe and the judge or magistrate would accept it and would, you know, look the other way or lower the charges, whatever the case may be. And it doesn't have to be a blatant bribe. You know, we always think of in the movies where they, they meet in the back alley and one person just gently, you know, they're shaking hands and all of a sudden there's a few coins that appear in one person's hand. Okay, now that, yeah, that happens. But another way that it happens is a donation. You know, you have a some rich person uh, offering to donate something, uh, a whole new building or a lot of money. Uh, just, you know, it looks, it looks nice. It looks charitable. But behind it really is the person is trying to influence the law to be in their favor. Either they're going to do something unlawful or they already have, and they're just trying to uh, get out from under the law. Now, that, that being said, there have been cases where the uh, law has actually sided with the poor against the rich. Now, what this, when this usually happens, it usually involves one person trying to undermine the authority of the elite group, the elite wealthy group. And the only way he can do that is by appealing to the poor masses of people. And a good example of this is Julius Caesar, who offered publicly, he promised to take the wealth from the rich, from the landowners, and redistribute it to the poor. And he also promised to give uh, free bread, quote-unquote free bread, to the people. And he did this in order to gain popularity and to counter the power of the Senate. Because during the time when Caesar was in Gaul, modern-day France, and the Senate was pretty much against him and was worried about some of the things that he was doing, well, they had good reason to worry. Uh, they were trying to limit his power, and he was trying to increase it. And he viewed the Senate as his enemy, so he needed to appeal to another group. He appealed to the poor. And by doing so, he was able to get enough authority, enough popularity, that uh, he was able to become dictator for life when he returned back to Rome. So it's clear that uh, the poor are not always the ones that are, that are downtrodden by the law um, and by those who have power. And in fact, under Marxism, with uh, Lenin and Stalin, for example, they did the same thing. An example would be uh, the kulaks or the peasant landowners in Russia. They were judged to be evil because they had land. Uh, and, and that kind of a mindset and that kind of a culture under Marxism and communism, uh, the oppressors are always evil. And who are the oppressors? Those who have land. Anybody who has land. Anybody who has anything uh, significant. Uh, a lower middle class person would be considered the oppressor. And the the working poor, the proletariat, was the oppressed. So they were always in the right because they were poor. So anyways, at the end of the day, you have examples of both in history, favoritism towards the rich and favoritism towards the poor. Now, the good thing about Lady Justice, uh, who is personified as uh, the woman with a sword in one hand, the scales in the other, and she's blindfolded. And it's good that she's blindfolded uh, because her job is to weigh the scales of justice with fair and balance and equality. 
She doesn't care about a person's ethnicity or gender or color or any external feature. All, all persons are held equal under the law. They don't get the equal outcome. Okay, some people are guilty and some are innocent. Some people get punished and some are exonerated. So not everyone gets tr- gets the same result, I should say. They get treated the same in the sense that the process is the same for everyone. The rules are the same for everyone. And that is so important for our society, for any society. And it certainly was so important that God made it very clear to Israel, you are to have blind justice, fair justice, equal weights and measures, a proper scale of justice. And the rich are not guilty simply because they are rich. And the poor are not guilty simply because they are poor. These are objective standards that we must aim for. And all humans should be held to the same standard. And that applies to any law that is on the books. So that is just a very brief rundown of those laws in the Old Testament. Very clear application for us today in every in everything that we do. And that applies, honestly, in every area of life. I mean, it's not just in government. Even in the family, as parents, do you hold all the children accountable to the same rules? It doesn't mean that they're all the same, that the children are exactly the same, or that even you act towards them the same way. And what I mean is, you know, some children might be able to handle certain things more than others, or some children are more mature than others, or, you know, some children are younger than others, right? So how you talk to them might be a little different. How you interact with them is going to be a little different, but that doesn't mean that the laws are different. You know, if it's breaking the rules to jump, to be jumping on the bed, well, that's a rule for all of them, not just for the 10-year-old, but also for the three-year-old. So, you know, if there's a rule like we don't lie, or we don't punch each other, well, okay, that applies for everybody. So, but that also would apply in business as well. Um, how, you know, how you treat workers and employees and, and co-workers or bosses. So the laws, the rules have to be the same for everyone. And that is uh, key to any, any system to, to survive and thrive is for that to be the case. All right. So that is our law of the day. Now, what I want to do for this episode is I want to begin a series going through the book Lex Rex, which is In other words, law is king. And uh, this book was written in the 1600s by a Puritan named Samuel Rutherford. And I want to spend some time going through that book because it's an older book. And even though you can get modern translations, I know that not everyone is going to want to read that book. But if there's any books out there that I think Christians should read, um, all Christians should read, this is one of those books. I think it is a foundational book for understanding government, just in general, human and government and the responsibilities of both the rulers and the citizens. And it's not entirely long of a book. And how he goes through things is he simply asks questions and spends a couple pages responding to that question. It's just a series of questions that just logically takes you from one step to the other. Um, and so I just think it's a very important book and I, I'm not going to read it verbatim, but I want to go through and summarize, uh, chapters, uh, each episode, uh, 
so that we can cover the whole book. And I want to equip you as listener. Maybe you don't like reading books. Maybe you don't find these books to be interesting. Well, maybe hopefully I can help to either uh, get you uh, the information that you need to, to survive or to get the very bare bones essentials from this book that I think um, all Christians should have uh, in, their, in their knowledge bank. Or this will give you an appetite to learn more about this man and about this book. So to begin, really, uh, Rutherford himself, he was a, a Scottish Presbyterian and a Calvinist. He was born in 1600. And he was ordained in the church as a, as a minister slash pastor um, at age uh, 27. He attended the General Assembly at Westminster, Westminster uh, during the English Civil War in 1643. And that assembly is what resulted in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which many Reformed churches hold to. There's also the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, which is uh, similar in its structure and style, but this one was the Presbyterian version, essentially, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a very good confession, has very many gems in it that uh, I would encourage all Christians to read, even if you're not Presbyterian. There's uh, such good stuff in there. Now, Rutherford also published several different works, but one of his most notable works was Lex Rex, Law is the King. And that was in 1644. Now, again, I mentioned this was during the English Civil War. I don't want to spend too much time on the history of that. It is a very interesting history, something that I think that uh, Christians would would find useful to uh, to do a little bit of reading on. Uh, the English Civil War does have direct influence on the founding of uh, the American nation, okay, because of the results of that war. Uh, and the Puritans, or the later on pilgrims, that fled from there to come to the colonies. So there is a direct connection between the English Civil War and the founding of the United States later on down the road. Now during this time, the Parliament was in control of the country with uh, Oliver Cromwell as Lord Protector. Now eventually, after Cromwell dies, the monarchy is reestablished, with uh, Charles II being uh, co- coming back and being uh, made king again. Now, once the monarchy was reestablished in England, Rutherford's book, Lex Rex, was banned, and Rutherford himself was placed under house arrest. And he died naturally in 1661 before he could be executed. Uh, but it, it's more than likely that he would have been executed for treason had he lived any longer. Now, it's interesting, he doesn't he doesn't argue for revolution per se. Um, I don't think I don't think what he's arguing for uh, is that, and I don't think what he's arguing for is unbiblical. Like I said, I really do think that that he is as close to if if anyone is as close to the truth as possible regarding government and the role between the the state and the individual. I think that Rutherford Rutherford got there. He he nailed it. Um, not saying he's perfect, but I still have yet to uh, find out those areas in which he has erred. So, but at the time, what he said was so offensive to the monarchy that his life was threatened and more than likely would have would have ended by execution. So, what I want to look at are the first three questions, which are, are pretty quick. So, 
The first question is, does God's law justify civil government? And it's, a, it's about just like one page that he spends on this because it's pretty clear. And Rutherford says uh, that Romans 13 makes it clear that government comes from God. Okay, he quotes Romans 13 and 1 Peter and basically shows that there, there is government and God has, uh, uh, has ordained it for a purpose. Um, the one thing he does note, though, that's very important to keep in mind is he says that only God, by his law, can bind a person's conscience and then demand punishment for it. So if, you, if God commands you to believe something, uh, only God can command uh, things that bind your conscience, so issues of religious belief, things like that, and only God can demand punishment for it. So he does put that out there, which I think is going to be important later on. In chapter 2, does natural law justify government? Now, it's important to point out, when he's talking about natural law, and I think when most uh, uh, Christians at that time are talking about natural law, and in general, natural law was understood to be from God as well. It's just that God's law was typically used to refer to his explicit commands in Scripture, whereas natural law is used to refer to that which we see in nature or general revelation. It's not common, It's not a different law, okay? It's still the law of God, but God made nature. He made the world to function a certain way. And so do we see through general revelation, through creation, uh, anything that would say that government, I should say, is justified, that there should be government? Well, he says that there's nothing in nature to suggest that one person or one particular race or group of people should be in charge. In other words, if if a whole bunch of people were just living uh, in a in some territory and there's no government, right? Just a whole bunch of families. There's nothing to suggest in nature that one race or class or group should be in charge. There's there's nothing that says you should be in charge. This person should be in charge simply because they live in this spot or they're this tall or they're this wealthy, whatever the case may be. That's not in nature. But what is in nature is that when people and families unite to form a political body to protect themselves and their property, right there is government. So government is a, is a natural outpouring of the desire to, to, as a group, to protect your stuff and to protect your persons. So if a group of people wish to defend themselves and wish to protect their stuff, they will, by nature, form a government. Now, he goes on to say that there is no naturally required form. It's not, it doesn't have to be a monarchy or republic or democracy or an aristocracy. It doesn't have to be a particular way. Uh, he talks about how Adam had authority over his family, but uh, as more families became populated on the earth, it became too, you couldn't, you couldn't govern just by keeping it in the family. You had to have something else, right? So, um, whereas family is organic and natural, okay, children and parents, that's a, that's a natural organic relationship that from the get-go has a hierarchy of authority. Um, government, civil government, is in this sense artificial and man-made. It is certainly God-ordained, but it is it is formed through persons getting together. It is man-made in that regard. 
the, 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 the humans involved decide how it is structured and what it does and who is going to be the one uh, in charge. So, so as Rutherford would say, it is ordained by God, but formed through men. Now, that is basically chapter two. Now, chapter three, he goes into more detail regarding, is there one form of government that God favors? Now, I said earlier that the answer is no. And Rutherford points out that unless God specifically commands a certain type of government, then every culture, every group is free to make their own, whatever they see fit. So God speaks to government in general. God says that government is, is necessary in general. He ordains it, generally speaking. Now, whether, whether there's uh, governors or emperors or kings or senators, that is really a matter of the culture deciding. Um, now, of course, Rutherford points out that God did set up Israel originally as a loose confederation of tribes with judges and elders. So essentially an aristocracy slash representative form of government. Um, but then God did ordain a monarchy to be, to be established. Now, Israel, of course, they, they wanted a monarchy for the wrong reasons. But later on, obviously God ordained it and allowed for it and established it and established King David and the line of David and things like that. So there was a, there was a change there. But even monarchies have lesser magistrates within them. It's not just the king by himself. There's elders and priests in Israel. And in other countries, such as medieval Europe, there were counts and barons and all kinds of things, right? So there's always, there's always tiers of people in authority. It's not just, even a monarchy doesn't just have the king. There's a lot more that goes on in a monarchy. Now, uh, Rutherford points out, uh, and he's referring back to Aristotle with regards to this, that there are basically three main forms of government. There is monarchy, rule by one person, essentially. There's aristocracy, rule by a few people. And then there's republic or democracy, rule by the many. Um, all the governments, all the forms, have the same job, according to God, to punish evil, preserve the good, and basically to defend uh, people's property and persons, okay? Um, which, whichever one exists, though, is is the prerogative of that particular nation. Now, he doesn't say this, uh, but other authors will say that the best form of government is one that has aspects of all three, because they all have different advantages. So just to give a quick example, monarchy, the advantage of monarchy is very quick decision-making, obviously, because you have one person that, that does everything. The, but the disadvantage is that if you get one bad guy in there, it can do some serious damage to the whole country. On the other hand, a democracy can be bad because uh, you have to get a consensus to even get anything done, and that can be very difficult to get sometimes, um, as, we, as we can see today in our own country. But the advantage of a democracy is that not one person can be in charge, and therefore there's very little damage that can be done. So you can't really do much good, but you also can't do much damage. So every form of government has its advantages and disadvantages. And the best form is one that takes 
that takes advantage of all three forms of government, uses their strengths, and offsets their weaknesses. And the perfect example of the balance of those three forms of government is the United States. And our founders purposely put into place all three in order to take advantage of all three strengths and minimize all three weaknesses, which is why we have essentially the Senate, which is the aristocracy, the rule of the few, the hundred. You have the executive, you have the, 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 the president, right, and the governors underneath that have monarch-like powers, not, not of course, uh, as much as a monarch would have, but something similar to that, one person having that kind of power to execute the laws. And then you have the rule of the many in the House of Representatives. So you have these things um, all together to help each other and complement each other. And I think uh, it's, a very, it's a very good system to have. And honestly, uh, probably the best one that could be made. Um, so anyways, that being said, uh, Rutherford sums it up with this. He says, civil power, according to its institution, is of God, and according to its formation and practice is of man. And I think that's a very good uh, summary of the situation regarding what form of government to be used, because it's kind of like marriage. Marriage is ordained by God. We would all agree on that. It's given by God, but marriage takes different forms and looks a little bit different in every culture. Uh, vows can be different. Certain practices can be different. The structure and flow of the ceremony can have some differences. Some exchange rings. Some use cloth uh, draped over the arms. So uh, they all do different things, but they're all in their essentials the same. They're doing the same thing. They're bringing a man and a woman together in a permanent basis uh, for stability and for, for structure, uh, the building block of society in order to bring about the next generation and to bring order out of chaos. Uh, so these are all designed by God for that purpose and marriage is a beautiful uh, is a beautiful thing and marriage is the foundation for society. Now, just because it looks different doesn't mean that uh, marriage means something different. It doesn't in its core. And the same thing is true for government. Uh, government has the same purpose and role in all cultures. It's just that how it's formed and how it goes about doing its job will look a little different in every culture. But its, it's civil power itself, its institution, is ordained by God. So that's uh, the first three chapters of what Rutherford is getting at in his book. And I, again, I would encourage you to pick up the book. It's not that not that long of a book, but we'll we'll look through it um, in future episodes, uh, just uh, chapter by chapter. Or if they're certain, if they're short, we can knock out several chapters at a time. So, anyways, I know this episode's coming out on Thanksgiving, so I encourage you to certainly give thanks to God for all the things that He's done uh, for you and your family, and even in the year 2020, kind of crazy year. Uh, we can always be thankful to God for His Word. And certainly for, I would say, government. We should be thankful for government. Um, even when we don't like the way government is functioning or how it's, how it's acting, we should be thankful because the government is there to prevent error. Anyways, with that, have a wonderful and blessed Thanksgiving. And until next time, take care.